brothers and sisters, comrades and friends, welcome to another edition of Jacobin Weekends. I am your host, Nando Vila. My regular co-host, Anna Kasparian, is off today, so we have the lovely, the talented, the brilliant Ariella Thornhill. Ariella, how are you? Pretty good, Nando. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be back on weekends. You know, you're returning, you're returning co-host, um, and it's it couldn't be a bigger pleasure for me to have you back. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I miss Anna, but we'll, I'll see her next week. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, we have a great show for you guys today. We have uh, Slavo Zizek, who's going to come and talk to us about all the stuff that's going on. We're going to have some fun with him. Yeah. Are you excited? We'll cover everything. Gonna... I want to ask him if he watched Wonder Woman 1984. I'm curious what he thinks Yeah, about I it. need to get his take on that. You know, it's been panned as this, like, absolute feminist flop. But maybe there's some hidden message there that, that he can glean out for us. <laughs> feminist flop is my stripper name. Now, Ariel, um, what do you make of all the stuff that's going on? What do you, what's your what's your general take? Because we talked, we had a, our our whole show last week was dedicated to like what was going on in the news with the mm-hmm. stuff in the Capitol. What is your general take on all that stuff? Well, I do think, you know, there's a group of people that are like, "Are you surprised this happened? We've been warning you about this for years." Um, It is interesting that the people saying that they've been warning us about it for years weren't the FBI, (laughs) considering (laughs) they've been seeing this kind of mounting white supremacist violence. But I also think that when you see these kind of like fractured um, club based sort of like identity based groups, um, they're not just after a political end. Um, And I think they they're able to posture like they have a. Uh, actual like political framework because a big part of the left and I mean the liberal left and progressive left has been focusing so much on identity and white privilege as a kind of marker of social value and material um, worth and the ability to gain resources and have mobility and they've spelled out an economic platform for white supremacy right so it's like you only have these things on account of your white privilege you are no doubt going to have a segment of people who are like, well, that's terrible and unfair. And another segment that are like, I will defend it with my life. Yeah, I'll take that. (laughs) I'll re-up on that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what we saw. I think um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what level of collusion there was between certain parts of the Senate and um, the police force, etc. But I think kind of my bigger worry is the way that the state security apparatus will just pounce on this moment. I mean, we've seen this ballooning expansion of executive power. I think we forget that in the Bush years, they um, were arresting um, American citizens and and Obama killed an American citizen abroad with no oversight whatsoever. We don't want this to be another moment where they can kind of sink their teeth in, but, you know, the left really has no choice there. (laughs) Well, you know, and and there's been like kind of a uh, ongoing discussion debate over like the term fascism for example and it strikes me as like i remember those bush years especially like 2002 2003 that was way closer to me to what like fascism looks like than you know the trump administration i mean where it's just like the entire apparatus of the country was just mobilized in a way that i could never I, I i don't think we've seen in a long long time just like every single media structure power structure was just like 
ready for war, mm-hmm. um, all like all out mobilization and just that just the Trump and administration never people. got that. No, they they do attack people when there's no consensus behind their platform, but there's no hegemonic consensus, mm-hmm. right? It's not being like worked into the military, into executive power, into, um, you know, every branch of government in the way that we saw during the Bush years, which was staggering and absolutely mm-hmm. directly led to, you know, um, unsanctioned bombings of Yemen or Libya. Like, we've watched the U.S. wreak havoc um, on various countries throughout the world as a direct result of this kind of unquestioned power that uh, we gained after 9-11. And then, you know, go after our own citizens. We just saw uh, Julian Assange is not getting extradited, which I think is a win for the left. But, you know, the overall outcome isn't super positive in terms of, um, you know, protecting whistleblowers, making sure there's government accountability, We've got uh, still a dire situation that he's in. I think he's very ill. He's being denied, like, warm clothes. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's hard to – I think Trump likes the um, the fascist spectacle, and he's good at that. You know, he wanted to have, like, a military parade and bring back all of these things. Yeah. And, and I think that that's kind of, like – I might get in trouble for saying this. I think it's as American as apple pie. If mm. you look at the the spectacular history of American might, the way that it interacts with the public, you see a lot of moments like that. And it's deeply embedded in an idea that military personnel and police personnel have about their role and their public-facing side. Um, so I don't think it's a big departure there. Um, neither, to be honest, do I think is courting white supremacists. Mm. if you think that's novel (laughs) what do you make of that yeah that's american is apple pie yeah for sure yeah well we this week also did see and it was it kind of was quiet given all that's going on but there was a bit of good news and a bit of a glimmer of hope um we covered it on this show i did a segment on it um the unionization and drive down in bessemer alabama a um, bunch of uh, Amazon warehouse workers are organizing to form a union. It would be um, – it's the first unionization drive within Amazon in seven years, I believe, since 2014. Um, mm-hmm. It strikes it, – like Amazon strikes me as kind of the corporation of the present moment and the near future. It's like it's the corporation. Um, so a unionization drive um, within Amazon certainly would be a big, big deal. Um, but yeah, I just want to read this tweet uh, from um, an NPR reporter. It says, breaking some 6,000 workers at Amazon's warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama will begin voting on February 8th. So mark that date on your calendar on a groundbreaking possibility whether to form the first union in the company's U.S. history. Yeah, Mike, that, that strikes me as like, an incredibly important thing, um, potentially transformative. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight or anything like that, but it's the seeds of, 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 of something really important. Yeah, I think it is a big deal. I mean, at least in terms of Amazon's kind of hyper militant anti-union, like global, (laughs) globally, (laughs) um, you know, we've seen through the pandemic in other countries, Amazon workers striking, uh, having wildcat strikes, um, some tech workers kind of um, solidaristically helping out those workers. 
Um, we've also seen record numbers of infections in a lot of U.S. industry, and I think it's a big deal to have them at this moment take a hard stand against Amazon. And Amazon seems like a tough opponent. I think every company has like an anti-union playbook, but Amazon's has gotten really novel. Yeah, I would not. I would not. Yeah, Jeff Bezos is like a pretty scary dude uh, in many, yeah. many ways. Cartoonish um, villain. Yeah, I mean, and one of the things, one of the funny things that you you brought up uh, when we were preparing for the show, Ariella, is this, this this idea that Amazon, there's this quote from Business Insider, Amazon also wanted to use the company's direct assistant and other company-owned equipment to conduct the election, with the petitioner said, could cause a conflict of interest. So they wanted to use, like, essentially, like, their own, quote-unquote, voting machines. Yeah, <laughs> I the, like the idea of instead of a company store, you have, like, a company infrastructure. And it's like, right. you didn't get enough company credits to be able to vote the way you want to. Right. Too bad. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's also crazy that they first pushed back against doing um, a mail-in vote, which is pretty standard. Um, in in one of my workplaces, we unionized at Verso, actually, and uh, we most of the firms that that were working with the union did mail-in votes. Um, I signed my card, I think, like on a sidewalk. <laughs> With my son going like solidarity forever in the background, signing the card on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. It's red like, diaper, yeah. baby. Yeah, it's like singing um, in the rain. Yeah, we should write that. That would be a very good. Yeah. Uh, maybe Michael Moore can come back to Broadway with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think you know it's it's fairly standard um, for companies to petition to um, block these things. What's not standard is this. No, you can't do a mail-in vote, but if you guys want to stay safe, you should use this totally inconspicuous, yeah. it's like, you know, sliding Alexa, a teddy bear with a nanny sign can. my union card. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Remember. Oh, shit. I forgot. Um, well, speaking of Verso, they are gracious sponsors of this show. <laughs> um, and... You know, here in January, you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to four books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. As a special introductory offer, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month for ebooks only. The comrade tier is $20 a month. And if you join in January, you'll get how to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire by Andreas Malm. The Care Crisis, What Caused It and How Can We End It by Emma Dowling. Capitalism and the Sea, The Maritime Factor in the Making of the Modern World by Liam Campling and Alejandro Colas. Lessons on Rousseau by Louis Althusser. I don't know how to pronounce that name. You did but. a stunning job with the Spanish pronunciation, though. Well, yeah, so I applaud that. You know, yeah. I shouldn't do this because I told you that you should plug the Verso Book Club because I don't want to. <laughs> Not because I don't like it. I actually love that model. I think it's really nice. Um, most companies are moving to a subscription model and you can yeah. get our books for, for pretty cheap. But the other nice thing is, you know, we're going to um, start digitizing our whole backlist. So if you mm. want to just join at the reader level, we'll be introducing more eBooks from, you know, the sixties and <laughs> the greatest hits of the sixties, seventies and today. Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, that's great. We get more, more, more stuff from Verso. We have some from someone on the inside. There we go. Yeah. That's great. Well, Ariella, let's get this show on the road with our decode segments. I'll go first and then 
We'll chit chat and then you'll go. How's that sound? Great. All righty. Well, America, in just four short days, we will all be riding with Biden. And this week, we officially got the first major policy proposal from the incoming Joe Biden administration. Now that we finally got the bad orange man out of there. Melissa, the Biden administration is unveiling a $1.9 trillion economic proposal that will serve as the opening point for negotiations with Congress for a first stage rescue package as it tries to grapple with both the economic crisis and the pandemic during the first weeks in office. $1.9 trillion. That seems like a lot of money to me. Remember, when the Obama administration passed a stimulus bill in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, it was only in the $700 billion range. This number was totally inadequate to deal with the economic crisis at the time, and it was probably the main reason why Democrats suffered historic losses in the 2010 midterms. But what is also different about the stimulus package nowadays that the Biden administration is proposing is that for the most part, it's not your typical Democrat-brained combination of means-tested tax cuts although there is some of that. So what's in it? Let's let the CNBC reporter explain. Let's start with the pandemic pillar, which itself is about $400 billion. There's $160 billion uh, for a national vaccine program. $20 billion of that will be partnerships with states. $50 billion will go to expanding national testing. $30 billion for additional supplies and PPE for frontline workers. And $170 billion for schools, both K-12 through and higher education. Okay, so $400 billion for a vaccine rollout. That's good. We need that. Getting the vaccine in as many people's hands as possible in the quickest way possible is the most important thing that the Biden administration can do right now. And Biden is promising to increase the federal government's role in the vaccine rollout, which is also a good thing because the federal government is big and powerful and can more easily coordinate than if you just leave it up to our dysfunctional, our dysfunctional federalized system. So that's good. What else is in there? As for the second pillar, $1 trillion in direct aid to individuals through several different programs. First, another $1,400 per person check. That's on top of the $600 checks authorized in December. An increase of weekly federal employment benefits to $400 a week that would go until the end of September. $30 billion in rental assistance and extending the eviction ban through September increasing earned income and child care tax credits, and also raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Okay, so $1 trillion in direct aid to people, that sounds good. But remember how Ossoff and Warnock ran on the plank that if you elected them to the Senate, you'd get a $2,000 check? Well, it turns out that the Democrats are now saying that it's actually $1,400 checks because you already got the $600 checks from the last bill. And here's where we start to see that Democrat brain disease creep in a little bit. $2,000 checks have become a symbolic benchmark, something to rally people around. The difference between $1,400 checks and $2,000 checks is about $200 billion in total. The total bill is $1.9 trillion as it stands. Why not start with $2.1 trillion and go from there? I mean, what difference is it? $200 billion here or there? It's not a big deal. Anyway, there is this federal $15 minimum wage plank in there, which is really remarkable for anyone who is old enough to remember when the Fight for 15 movement started back in 2012, and how annoying liberals were when they laughed at them for being totally unrealistic. Not so funny anymore, huh? Well, the Biden plan also has a pretty substantial increase in childcare subsidies. The problem is that they come in the form of a tax credit. And as David Dayen writes, 
The bill adopts the Brown-Bennett expansion of the child tax credit to $3,600 a year for children under 6 or $3,000 a year for children between 6 and 17. It's only a one-year expansion, as is an expansion of the earned income tax credit and money for the welfare block grant. There are much better ways to deliver these benefits, like with a flat check, than through a tax credit, which families won't see until 2022 and which denies the lowest income people in the economy any benefits. Again, Democrat brain, delivering a childcare benefit through a tax credit bizarrely means that the poorest family families, aka the ones that need it the most, don't get it. Matt Brunig has proposed an alternative model. Why don't we just send every parent checks in the mail? He writes, I argue that we should have the Social Security Administration simply send out $374 every month to every child in the country. The $374 figure is chosen because under the federal poverty guidelines, this is the amount it would take to ensure that no family ever slips into poverty solely because they added a child to their family. Again, this is the kind of simple policy that if enacted would transform the country and also ensure democratic victories for a generation. But they want tax credits. Okay, what else is in there? Finally, the Biden team is proposing $350 billion for state and local governments, $20 billion for public transit, and a $50 billion increase to small business disaster grant and loan programs. Okay, so that's money for state and local governments, which they desperately need. See, in our system, state and local governments can't run a deficit. So when the coronavirus hit, their tax pace was absolutely destroyed because economic activity stopped. So that means local governments have to slash budgets and fire workers precisely when they needed them the most during an emergency. If you're thinking to yourself, wow, what a dumb system we have. Well, you would be correct. We do have a very dumb system. So this Biden stimulus plan has a lot of good stuff in it. It is not a socialist budget that we at Jacobin would have proposed. It doesn't nationalize entire industries, for example. But but I think it's safe to say that Given what we know about Joe Biden and the Democrats, it's better than expected. Now the problem will be passing it. And in the words of Del Preston in Wayne's World 2, that's a whole other story altogether. You see, as Bloomberg writes, Biden is going to look to pass this with Republican support. Quote, President-elect Joe Biden will seek a deal with Republicans on another round of COVID-19 relief, rather than attempting to ram a package through without their support, according to two people familiar with the matter. The approach could mean a smaller initial package that features some priorities favored by Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. The idea is to forego using a special budget process that would remove the need to get the support of at least 10 Republicans in the Senate. Ah, bipartisanship. It just gets the Democrats hard. That's what really, really, really gets them going. They're so terrified of doing anything on their own, and they always want to appear bipartisan, even though the people they are trying to be bipartisan with just whipped up their base into such a frenzy that they stormed the Capitol building just last week. Obama, for his part, spent eight years trying to do the same thing, to win over Republicans, and look what it got him. And that Republican Party back then was tame compared to what it is now. The Democrats could push most of this package through a process called budget reconciliation. The Senate is like this weird parliamentary body. It, it, it has all kinds of arcane rules that are hard to understand. But the short of it is that through reconciliation, you don't need any Republican votes because a simple majority would do. That process is controlled by the senator who chairs the budget committee. And who is that? 
By God, it's Bernie Sanders coming in with a steel chair. And he's got twerps like Paul Ryan running scared. Let's take a look at Paul Ryan telling people in Madison what the power of the Senate means and rests on. If we lose the Senate, do you know who becomes the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee? A guy named Bernie Sanders. You ever heard of him? <laughs> this just tells you what we would be dealing with in, this, in, in a divided government if we lose control of the Senate. Ooh, Bernie Sanders, ever heard of him? And according to the New York Times, quote, the nature of the process effectively gives Mr. Sanders a leading role in deciding how expansive and expensive Mr. Biden's ambitions for new taxes and spending will be. Mr. Sanders said it in the interview that he wanted an initial emergency stimulus package to be, quote, big. But he also wants to do some other things with health care. Quote, he also wants to create an emergency universal health care program so that anyone can get medical treatment during the pandemic, whether they currently have insurance or not. Giving people public health care, even if it's temporary, could be transformative. The New York Times continues. Mr. Sanders said he had been speaking with Mr. Biden about the scale and timing of stimulus legislation. He said that he did not intend to try to force his long-held priorities, such as Medicare for All, into a relief bill. However, he does intend to test the legal bounds of how reconciliation can be used so that Democrats can pass policies that go beyond traditional budget items and address, quote, structural problems in American society. So Biden is going to try to pass his pretty ambitious bill through regular order. But that seems like it's going to be a non-starter with Republicans, so it's going to waste a bunch of time. And then when they get desperate, they'll maybe try to do it through reconciliation. And it is comforting to know that Bernie is in there controlling that process. And as I was looking through the business channels to research this segment, I was struck by just how eager Wall Street investor types were for this stimulus package to pass. I mean, this segment on CNBC was fairly typical. I was um, looking at some of the responses, for example, from uh, Kevin Brady and, and, and House GOP leadership. And the, the general tone is, here we go again, uh, trying to recapture what they didn't get in the HEROES Act, a grab bag of goodies from the Democrats. Do you think that really slows down what the president-elect is trying to get? I don't think so. I, I mean, I, I know Kevin Brady and I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, but he is one of the traditional deficit hawks um, that have been dwindling in the Republican Party. And given the, the data that's come in, in in recent years, I just don't think the deficit is going to play right now as a as a major political issue, although there remains a cadre of Republicans, but not enough to really, I think, um, block this. Are the deficit hawks losing their mojo? I mean, and then I kept watching and my eyes almost popped out of my head when I saw this guy. And then, Jim, we go from this proposal to the next potential one, of course, focus on infrastructure, something that I think much of corporate America certainly supports, even if their tax rates were to go up a bit. Corporate America supporting infrastructure, even if their tax rates go up a bit? Well, as producer Kale pointed out to me in a text, the left has to get the idea out of its head that in neoliberalism, capitalists want the state to do nothing. It's there to rationalize the contradictions and mitigate crises. It has a very important role to play, and it, of course, is mostly focused on figuring out the best political actions to help the most important sectors of capital. And the irony is that under Obama, the resistance to a large stimulus was absolutely hegemonic. It wasn't just Republicans, but important people within his own administration, like Rahm Emanuel and Larry Summers, who worked hard to limit the size of the package, which ultimately doomed his presidency. 
Now, in 2021, there will be resistance, but I get the sense that it is not as hegemonic as it was in 2009. The impact of the twin Sanders presidential campaigns, the organizing of volunteer and membership organizations, and some renewed labor militancy might be causing the left to be punching above its weight a bit right now. But that doesn't mean the Democrats won't fuck it up. They have been known to step on the rake in the past. And we should never forget capital's ability to strike back against politicians deviating from their interests. We have a long way to go to execute our political program. But if Joe Biden, the least inspiring man in the history of the world, manages to pass something meaningful during this crisis, it will go a long way to ensuring that he won't fail in the way his former boss did. That was great. Budget talk, baby. That's what we're that's what we're doing here. Yeah, you know, I think we should start calling this show Squawk on the Street. I don't yeah, know how we missed that. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Kale's point about um, you know, the role of the state is interesting. And for the last uh years, few years of the Trump presidency, I, I don't have this article to pull up right now, but the um steelworkers unions were looking to invest in infrastructure and we're pushing him to do that. They were like, this is a huge part of your campaign. We want to partner with you. Um, and they came to the conclusion that it was just rhetoric. So it'll be interesting to see when they've already, you know, been lobbying for this, what they will do about Biden's promises around infrastructure. And I think Capital's approach to it is, yes, give us better roads and bridges. They're crumbling and <laughs> we need them for our logistics, particularly with things moving towards shipping. Um, so, you know, I, I think we might see less resistance there because the money that they'll get um, in terms of the, you know, tax increases, which, you know, that doesn't mean much to them. I don't think that that's going to happen. But the money that they'll be getting or saving rather from these investments will be pretty significant for their business models. So, yeah, I think that that's where some of that support lies. They want the state to step in and fix it when it's good for business. And, you know, this may be a case when that is. Yeah, I, I just couldn't I couldn't help but uh, find it funny that Joe Biden, who's just I find to be like a ridiculous figure in so many ways, just like a, he makes me laugh in, in, in a way that that other politicians don't. When he bites um, your finger. Yeah, when he bites your <laughs> finger, when he when he just talks about random things that from like the 1950s that no one cares mm-hmm. about. Corn pop. When he when he cuts an ad about like driving a car up and down a driveway saying like, oh, boy, my dad could drive a car. And it's like, (laughs) you know, I just find him to be like a totally, absolutely ludicrous figure. Whereas Obama, um, who I don't like at all, but you can recognize as a kind of impressive figure and very kind of uh, resplendent in many ways and and obviously very intelligent and all all the all the all the adjectives you could you could come up with. But because uh, because he in the time he, he came up in, like austerity was just so hegemonic, not just here, but in Europe, um, that his presidency was just ultimately a total disaster, that Joe Biden, this like bumbling idiot, ludicrous figure, like if that, if the, if the, if the, if the hegemony of austerity is not as powerful as it was in 2009, that he may actually end up being a more successful president than Obama. Um, And it just, I just find that to be very kind of funny. Yeah, you know, I think part of their bipartisanship addiction is that it's a lot better to act like weakness, political weakness is a part of your strategy, than it is to admit, you know, full out that you have no power, because that's what Obama was facing in his second term. And, you know, to say, well, it's actually a virtue. 
um, you know, it's turning, it's turning the political weakness of that moment into a humble brag. Like I'm just so bipartisan. I couldn't get anything done. Um, and I think the Democrats are really good at that. And I think they use it when it, um, works to keep their message clear, right? You know, Obama could say, I'm ambitious. These are the things that I want to do. You know, I came up as a community organizer. I care about working people. He, he delivered, um, a lot of speeches during the Bush administration about how exactly the stimulus money should be spent. He focused on, you know, relief for the middle class. That rhetoric didn't come out of nowhere. But then when it became impossible to push it through or maybe undesirable politically for him um, and for the donor class of the Democrats, you know, you pivot to, sorry, I'm too bipartisan to do anything. (laughs) Um, And you scapegoat the bipartisanship. And I think the Democrats are really good at you know, kind of tricking <laughs> tricking the public into thinking that their weakness isn't deliberate. They right. they did this with the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, who just helped uh, women not be able to get um, abortion pills unless mm-hmm. they go physically into a clinic, which is great during a pandemic. Um, and, you know, I don't think that they wanted her out. I think that they wanted her in. She's a, a bulldog for capital. She hates workers. If you look at the other things that she does besides her, like, Christian cult that she's in, she has thwarted worker power in every case that it's been brought to her. And the Democrats were like, oh, what can we do? Oh, it's so bad. You should keep donating to us. Maybe one day we'll have the power to fix this. So, yeah, yeah I think they're playing us a little bit with this. And, I think it'll be interesting if there's a kind of realignment um, or even like a minor shift against austerity during the Biden administration. Um, I think we're going to be hearing about some tactics that they'll say are novel, that they'll say were inaccessible previously, that actually were there the entire time. Um, And I think a big part of their kind of um, caveat in the bill is that they're working it into the tax code. Um, you know, with the earned income tax credit, that's the way that Obama approached um, the Affordable Care Act. There, the politics of, you know, the U.S. tax code is a different game, I think, than yeah. than the politics of uh, the social safety net. Yeah. Well, Ariella, what do you got? Yeah, speaking the of the social safety net. Yeah. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about the push to vaccinate prisoners during the COVID crisis. And when I was looking into this, you know, Jacobins covered this, but surprisingly, the mainstream media has covered it quite a bit as well. So the U.S. has um, another exceptional record under its belt. The COVID cases have topped 23.6 million Um, And as the vaccination continues to roll out across the country, people are making the case for early vaccination of prisoners. And this ranges from mainstream outlets like USA Today, The New York Times, The Washington Post, to state politicians, for instance, in Massachusetts, where they prioritize vaccination for inmates. And even the CDC recommends that inmates receive the vaccine in the first wave. Um, The COVID crisis has justifiably led to an increased concern around prisoners' health care, not simply because they are an exceptionally vulnerable population, but also because prisons and jails are acting as vectors for the spread of the disease. COVID outbreaks in prisons and jails also pose a unique risk to the surrounding hospitals, particularly in rural areas. How how important is 
releasing prisoners to free up space as far as preventing the spread inside these facilities? It's a critical tool, and it's it's one that's being used effectively in, in many areas, but not enough. Uh, it's a critical tool because it allows us to get some of the most vulnerable people out of detention settings, people we know are at high risk for actually dying if they contract COVID-19. It's a critical tool, uh, as you mentioned, because it helps us manage the outbreak inside for everybody who's still there. So we can spread people out, uh, keep people in appropriate uh, housing areas and a safe, safer distance from each other. But it's also a critical tool because it helps us prevent local hospital systems from becoming overwhelmed. Uh, When the virus runs like wildfire through these facilities, uh, just in the space of a day or two, it can overwhelm a local hospital. And particularly for rural counties, where we have fewer and fewer hospitals because of hospital closures, but we have lots and lots of county jails, state and federal prisons, and ICE detention centers. Uh, When this virus takes hold in crowded facilities, it it can completely overwhelm the sole uh, hospital that might be serving one or two counties uh, in the space of a day or two. Particularly in rural areas, there's been an increase in the amount of jails and prisons and a decrease in the amount of hospitals, and those areas are getting hit hard, particularly because they rely on those places as centers for employment. So you have people going in and out of those areas and then into communities that are underserved and underinsured, and it's a recipe for disaster. Um, There's an urgent, utilitarian, legal, and ethical argument for taking drastic measures to prevent COVID from spreading in jails and prisons through early release, vaccines for all prisoners and staff, and increasing the quality of food, living conditions, and medical care, which hasn't had as much of a focus as the vaccination. And it's pretty um, offensive and horrible that even though there's an increased focus on the absolutely grim prospects for a person with COVID in a jail, we are not focusing also on the fact that their food, living conditions, and medical care are inadequate to begin with. There's been great coverage about public health prisons and COVID on the Jacobin website, and I encourage you to check out these articles. Um, They tackle the issue from a socialist perspective, which is what we need. We also need to be constantly expanding that perspective. Um, I think it's great that there's some, some consensus between the mainstream media right now and socialists. We should be vaccinating the most vulnerable. That includes people outside of the United States as well. And we'll bring that up with um, Zizek later. So the utilitarian case is strong. And without controlling the spread in prisons, we risk the health of those inside and outside of their walls, which is abundantly clear in mainstream and indie coverage. The legal argument is undeniable. Prisoners are the only people in the U.S. that are constitutionally guaranteed the right to health care through the Eighth Amendment, and this is a right that they fought hard for since the 60s. But prisoners are being left alone to die in horrific conditions with absolutely no accountability from the system that has incarcerated them. The ethical argument speaks for itself. One in five prisoners has COVID. There are, that's around 3,000 Uh, sorry, 343,000 people. And that's a higher positivity rate than many countries and many counties outside of those jails and prisons. So far, more than 1,700 people have died. Um, Here's a clip of Lewis Clark, an inmate at the Stateville Correction Facility, talking about conditions in the prison's quarantine unit. Guards moved him into a quarantine area known to inmates as Tent City. The shower is ice cold. All of the inmates with COVID-19 in Tent City 
is subject to use the same toilet sinks and showers. The conditions? Floor to be flooded with feces and urine. Lewis says are horrifying. The quarantine tent is infested with roaches. Lewis is from Rock Island. At the age of 14, he stole a car. At 16, he was charged with aggravated battery on a peace officer and sentenced to two years in prison. While behind bars, Lewis claims he was being targeted by fellow inmates and guards. They didn't keep him safe. Weapons were found in his possession. My brother did get caught with some weapons. And he was sentenced to an additional 29 years. And I have less than three years left on the last weapon case. Lewis is now suing the prison for failing to provide him with medical treatment. This court document alleges that he became a target of repeated retaliatory measures taken by Illinois Department of Corrections, such as cancelling his medical appointments. They are acting with deliberate indifference to a prison condition and depriving the sick inmates of a basic need. The ethical case there is clear in terms of our moral uh, obligation to relieve suffering. When you hear a person talking about living in conditions like that, it's difficult to um, imagine that that's the case for millions of people across this country. But the socialist ethics of it are a little bit deeper. We have a moral right to science as the property of the people. We have a moral right to the resources that working people create for the good of working people. And we are not distributing them in a way that meets the mandate of the morality and the ethics of what working people have made. Um, The utilitarian and ethical cases for early release, vaccination, and safe housing extend beyond this crisis. The coronavirus may have exposed the cracks and fissures that people fall through in this country, but it's also exposed our profound interconnectedness and our interreliance as a species. Just as COVID-19 spreads with no regard for criminality, class, or status, other communicable diseases do as well. There are record rates of HIV and AIDS in prison populations, record rates of hepatitis C, and you see this leach out into the communities that are around these places because people connect to each other. That's something that socialists need to defend. Just as COVID-19 has changed our focus on the right that prisoners have for healthcare. We need to look at the gaps that already exist in that system. Prisoners struggle to get adequate care through third-party contractors, overstretched staff, and even then, in at least 35 states, inmates have to pay co-pays that can range from a few dollars to $100, while the work they do in prisons pays them pennies an hour. Healthcare is in no way a right if a person can't afford it, but that's the point, to discourage people from getting care, even in dire conditions. In addition, Medicaid coverage is revoked as soon as a person is booked in jail, regardless of whether or not they've been convicted. But despite this, prisons and jails act as a de facto treatment center for addiction and chronic illness in many communities. In Carolyn Suffren's book, Jail Care, she looks at the way pregnant women use jail as a replacement for an inadequate and inaccessible safety net. And this is common for people with other conditions. The left has heavily criticized the use of police to solve social issues, and rightly so. But we need to extend the same criticism to the use of jails and prisons to treat the chronically ill, those suffering with addiction, or those who are simply unable to afford care in other places. And when people lose benefits 
like Medicaid, after being booked, their families suffer, and the cycle of poverty and pain continues. Here's a quote from a CNN story about a woman who lost coverage when she was put in jail. Quote, another Douglas County inmate, Julia Conger, is a single mother of four children who was jailed in January for unlawful possession of someone else's debit card. She, wa- she had been supporting her kids with her disability benefits, and they also received health care through her Medicaid coverage, both of which ceased when Conger went to jail. When her sister took Conger's daughter to the dentist for a tooth problem, she was no longer covered. It's causing my daughter pain, Conger says, and it's terrible for me not being able to do anything. Prisoners' health also suffers when they're in jail, as does their families, and this creates a dynamic that lasts for years and does not stop once these people aren't incarcerated. They leave with higher rates of chronic illness and disease than any other population. Now, because of this highly contagious disease, the public safety issues posed by the the treatment of prisoners are being cast in a new light, and that's good. We need the focus to be on the most vulnerable in this crisis because their vulnerabilities are ours. But mass incarceration is its own disease in many communities. Multiple studies show the effects of incarceration account for poor health outcomes, increased levels of mental illness, and higher mortality rates community-wide. Uh, this is a quote from a study that says from the National Academics of Sciences saying, quote, people leaving jail and prison typically return to communities characterized by poor health outcomes and limited access to primary care, controlling for a range of factors that affect health. Counties with higher incarceration rates have 3% higher mortality rates compared with communities with lower incarceration rates. So yes, we urgently need early release. Yes, we need humane conditions for the duration of the pandemic and after. And yes, we need vaccines for all prisoners. But just as urgently, we need Medicaid expansion and ultimately Medicaid for Medicare for all. To deny prisoners care doesn't just affect them. And this is true for COVID, as true for COVID as it is for mental health, drug addiction, poverty, and chronic illnesses. We have an unprecedented moment where people at all levels of government and media are focused on the public health crisis in prisons and jails, and we need to expand that attention, make the case that the crisis doesn't just stop with COVID. The utilitarian argument and the ethical arguments here are one and the same. Yeah, when I, nothing causes me more despair about this country when thinking about, than when thinking about the the prison system. I mean, it's just, it is such a barbaric, intolerable thing that it, it, that has just kind of become part of our lives. Like part, it just, it is, it just is. And, and just when you think about the number of people, the number of lives destroyed, um, the treatment of those people within it, uh, the, the almost joking nature of the of the conditions within it, like for a civilized society, um, few things make me despair more <laughs> than yeah. than thinking about it. Like it's just, and and I can't even imagine what it must be like uh, during COVID. I mean, it 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 just has to be a nightmare in there. Yeah, you know, it was a little hard for me to do this segment. It's just hard to listen to these prisoners and what they're experiencing. But my niece was. Um, in a kind of release house and then she got COVID and she was put back in prison to serve two more weeks on her sentence right after she recovered from being on a ventilator. There is a calcification of these 
policies kind of at every level. And that also applies to, um, you know, group homes or halfway houses. Often times those are owned by the same companies as private prisons. So Geo Group is um, a huge owner in private prisons and they also own halfway houses and they're denying release. They're, they're actually quarantining people in these halfway homes, parolees, and not letting them leave, not letting them speak to the media. There are COVID outbreaks there as well. That's receiving less um, coverage than the issue in prisons and jails, but it's just as serious and it's the same actors involved. And yeah. of course, the uh, ICE detention centers, where not only do you have a range of abuses around COVID, you have forced sterilization, medical procedures that women uh, have not had any consent to. And that's also um, a common feature of prisons and jails. It's just one of the most kind of bleak, despairing places. But we have a unprecedented moment of attention on it right now in this country where people yeah. are actually talking about it as a social issue rather than ignoring it or acting like it's an aberration. And I think we need to seize on that. Yeah. And the, uh, and the, this thing that the Trump administration has done in the last couple months where they're just kind of speeding up the federal executions of, of yeah. inmates on, on death row, which, um, as I understand it, there hadn't been a, uh, federal execution in in a very long time in several years um you know most of the executions that have happened occur at the state level um and that just as soon as like they're about to leave get out the door they just speed up this federal execution system and it's like the barbarity and humanity of it is is it just makes me like you said it's absolutely bleak um makes me despair <laughs> um yeah. and and it's it's just the 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 sort of violence that undergirds um all of our systems is just i mean i what do you make of like what do you, what do you think the role of it plays in the broader system in the broader society this this like absolute brutality um of our prison system well, I think that there's two sides there. You know, I think with the Trump executions, he's trying to play to the, you know, law and order component of his base. Um, and so executions are a spectacular way of kind of appealing politically to a group of people. Um, and we saw this with Clinton. We saw this with Bush. So it's not a huge departure there. Um, but I think in terms of the conditions of prisons, this is a disposable population, um, and you see a very different dynamic when the state is dealing with someone who is an oppressed person and who um, whose oppression they rely on. Right. And someone who is, um, you know, in, in the working class who has some some amount of leverage. So with prison populations, you have an unprecedented amount of control over people. You have a population that. Um, exists within a narrative that they don't deserve certain rights and that um, this is satisfying like a general punitive desire, right? It's indulging that. And you see that, um, unfortunately, when people talk about this issue or other issues with prisoners or even the federal executions, well, you yeah. got what you deserved. But then you hear a story like we heard with Lewis Clark, who seemed to have committed minor offenses or a woman who used another person's debit card, which I'm sure, you know, in my opinion, that's not a big deal. 
It no. seems like this woman was suffering and she needed money and the yeah. state wasn't providing that and there's no options. Um, and I think that's the case with millions of people. But uh, we have a society that criminalizes poverty and pulls a huge portion of its citizens outside of their um, the normal scope of their rights. And it does yeah. so purposefully. And I think that you can see mass incarceration as a method of managing poverty, um, yeah. managing, redirecting resources from the many to the few. Yeah. Well, on that dour note, um, <laughs> let's get to our guest, because I am extremely excited to welcome the one and only Slavo Zizek onto the show. You, of course, know who Zizek is. He's a man so full of joie de vivre that you can't help but fall in love. He's also the author of many, many, many books, um, including the recent, his latest, Pandemic, COVID-19 Shakes the World. Slavoj, welcome to the show. Very excited to have you. I'm very proud to be here. Thank you. And I'm sorry if today I'm not exactly excessively full of joie de vivre. <laughs> Why? What's going on? Why not? Uh, well, as I wrote... And I still stick to that metaphor. Some people thought I am crazy that uh, the pandemic is a uh, uh, kill bill like hit to capitalism. No, I still think that now with the second wave and it what will follow, it is becoming more and more clear that what I provocatively call communism, some kind of socialization of health care, of our care for environment, of our economy, and so on, will prove necessary. But as I wrote in a text with, I think it was in that one, which Jacobin was kind enough to publish, you know, when we speak with about our situation, where is it moving? I think the crucial term is a deeply dialectical notion of Marx, which is tendency, tendential law. Like Marx speak about the tendential law for the fall of rate of profit. But as Marx added, this is a tendency which can cause counter gesture, a counter movement, so the result is not predestined. And I think that, uh, for example, what happened in Capital was precisely a very strong reaction, pseudo-populist reaction to this tendency. So, yes, in the long term, but not in the sense of predestination, it moves in our direction, the situation. But many things can happen in between. There is no big capitalized historical necessity. I hope just so that I say my prayer at the beginning, my mantra, I hope that you will all agree that one of the most dangerous ideological motives is that today it's a state of emergency, it's not the time for politics. We should forget about other problems, ecology or whatever, or maybe not forget them, but it's a medical emergency which should be left to doctors, health administrations, and so on and so on. I claim, no, it's maybe the most political moment of our lives. Capitalism itself is changing tremendously. 
Now our future is decided. Now it's the time for politicization. I agree with Greta Thunberg, which just incidentally, I think she is 18 now. A couple yes. of days ago, she had a birthday. You can marry you know, her legally. Yeah, Sorry? happy birthday, Greta. Yeah, you yeah, can marry, you and, can now uh, get married to yeah. her legally. <laughs> yeah, when she said, trust science. But I hope she meant it in a true way, not trust cheap science popularizers, like Elon Musk, who promised in 10 years, without even knowing what they are talking about, in 10 years from now, we will be able to communicate directly with our minds. You know, how you recognize an authentic scientist that I quoted Habermas here. What we learned in the pandemic is not only many new things, we learned also, so we know now much more about what we don't know. And this doesn't simply mean we are helpless. This means science will not simply tell us what to do. Politics is needed. I said my prayer, please. The scene is yours. Yeah, you know, I think that the... States often seizes on these moments that they call a state of exception. And we see that as a way that they deal with crises, whether they're manufactured or natural. That happened with 9-11. So they passed, you know, unprecedented laws criminalizing their own citizens, um, killing people abroad because it was a state of exception, because there's no time to question. I think the same thing is happening here. I think the same thing will happen after the, you know, riots in the Capitol um, I was wondering if you can talk about your vision, which is about a new communism, a new global communism. And can you expand on what you wrote in your Jacobin article, which is called uh, We Need a Socialist Reset, Not a Corporate Great Reset? Yes. Yes. But you see, I think you may disagree that already this term, the Great Reset, is falls into what I was telling about this uh, tendential law. It's a reaction of a obvious, everybody knows this, obvious tendency that the situation is pushing us towards some kind of what I call communism. So this is, I think, the reaction of the big business, this big capital. There are two main reactions. One is this, corporate reaction we retain formally our freedoms, but as isolated in our bubbles and so on, where already problems explode because, you know, for the privileged few of us to live in our bubbles, millions of people have still to run around and so on. But the other reaction, and I wouldn't underestimate it, is what people often too easily dismiss as Trump's cognitive dissonance and so on. People who, and in a strange way, I no, respect them is not the right word. Just uh, okay, understand them, whatever. You know, I know that the proof of the phrase, uh, we want our life back. Something was stolen from us and we want it back elections, our way of life, and so on. I know that basically, you know, as a Hegelian, I always look at a particular spin of universal notion. When somebody says, give us our life back, our normality back, we always have to ask, 
ourselves, let's take a closer look. What do they really mean by our life? And you see it's, to put it in a very, very general way, it's the middle-class white life, discreetly supported by billionaires who prefer to stay, to stay in the background. And this is, if I may, go into a little bit of a Hegelian political, don't be afraid, reflection. This is, how, this is how I understand, you see, the political use of Hegel's notion of concrete universality. If I say concrete universality, people react, oh, that madman Hegel who thought that universal idea generates all content out of itself. No, 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 no. Let's talk I'm sorry if some of you know it, but it's crucial today. Let's take another nice example. Black Lives Matter. Obviously, this privileges certain group. So, the, even some centrist liberals and right-wingers made the counterpoint, no, all lives matter. I say no, because if you read closely what Black Lives Matter means, it doesn't mean you other guys can drop that. It means this, in every concrete situation, there is a certain type of oppression which gives the tone or the specific color to the totality. If you talk today about political violence, social violence, violence against other races, police violence. The way blacks are treated is the hidden particular model. It's the model of all violence. While when they say, apparently in a neutral way, all lives matter. No, they secretly, this all is a false universality. They really mean black middle-class value, which are still hegemonic matters. So my Hegelian paradox is this one. It has very concrete political consequences that if you say all lives matter, it appears to be a universal statement. Oh, humanism, we all matter. But secretly, it privileges a certain group. But if you say black lives matter, although it's in its form of appearance a particular statement, it is the only truly universal matters to give you matter universal statement to give you a simple example if in germany in the late 30s you wanted to talk about racism you should put forward uh, anti-semitism the situation of jews and today in israel and west bank I'm telling my friends, if you want really to be anti-racist and also faithful to Jewish legacy, ah, let's say what you are saying about Palestinians in the West Bank. So you see, uh, this is also, I think, in a way, the, uh, the situation with COVID. It became that concrete universality. We all talk about it, but we should put it in its very complex context because uh, first, uh, uh, let's never forget that COVID, as I already said, is not uh, the pandemic. It's not simply a, a problem of health, of biochemistry, and so on and so on. It's part of our situation of 
today's global capitalism works, of our mo uh, the way we relate to nature, and so on and so on. This is why I agree here with a philosopher with whom I otherwise often don't agree, Bruno Latour, who said this is only the beginning. What will follow is either other pandemics or global warming, science are everywhere. So that's why I don't buy this formula of return to normality. No, by normality, we secretly mean the good old life when, you know, that's where I have this minimum of, I don't like the word sympathy, but understanding for those uh, anti-mask, anti-vaccine protesters. They were used to a certain mode of everyday life. And it's not simply just that I understand them. You go out to a bar, you drink with friends. I will not go into all this. I think we have to accept heroically that this is over. And uh, uh, now we are already in the middle of the political struggle of where all this will go. So to conclude with another repetition of myself, I like to repeat jokes if they are good. The best joke that I heard along these lines, it's not a joke, is in Chile, when protests began in 2019, October, you know that their motto was a wonderful one. Not, we do a socialist revolution and everything will be okay, but another end of the world is possible. <laughs> not the one that the media... And this should be our motto today. Yes, a certain way of life, it's over. But let's not, uh, let's not accept the alternative that it's offered to us, either total digital and social control, or on the other side, uh, this uh, false of Trump populist, false denial. Because the, yeah. the logic of Trump and his followers is clear, is relatively clear here. You pretend to speak about, let's cut, of course, the bullshit, simply about these uh, middle classes who feel threatened. Mm -hmm. And uh, they feel, that's, why, that's where conspiracy theory enters. They feel threatened, on the one hand, by COVID, it ruins their way of life. Uh, they feel threatened by immigrants, although here already I'm trying to think as realist as possible. Maybe at some level they have a point, but it's very difficult to find these points. Because, you know, as we all know, at the same time, immigrants are exploited. We know the situation in California, at least, how they work without any social security, healthcare, and so on and so on. And you see, this is a beautiful example of where post-colonial economic exploitation uh, is connected with COVID. I remember in the summer uh, when uh, 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 illegal Mexican or Latino American workers were much needed, uh, uh, they discovered catastrophic situation in many big farms. I remember one farm decided to test its 180, somewhere in Tennessee, I think, 180 uh, illegal immigrant workers. And you know how many tested positive? Well, to cut a long story short, all of them. 
you know. <laughs> so uh, you see, this already is a connection. So the way the enemy is attacking today is to forcing us into what Hegel would have called abstract thinking. Now is the time for for COVID. No, COVID is inherently part of a much more complex situation where COVID is obviously linked to protests against injustice, to ecological crisis, and so on, and so on. But again, now I'm finally... My God, I need a dominatrix. I need a woman to do me. Finally, to your Angela question, why communism? Because you know why I put this provocative formula. Look, believe me or not, I don't like Trump. The only re- slight point, I hope you will agree here, where I find, again, sympathy is totally wrong word. But what I find problematic in how he was excluded from, and he should have been, from uh, from uh, tweeting, from Facebook, and so on, is, you know, they say, for tweet, uh, they say uh, Facebook or Twitter excluded him. Sorry, can you personalize this? Which body, who excluded him? The problem is this one, as I developed following some Italian Marxist economists already a decade ago. Think about what is happening today with big figures like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, uh, Zuckerberg, and so on. Uh, The problem is that something that was not quite predicted or even envisaged by Marx happened. Let's take, sorry, my old example, Bill Gates. He is not exploiting his workers in any direct way, maybe. So I hear he's even paying them relatively well. His wealth comes not from profit, but from rent. Through his almost monopolist situation, we all, by using Microsoft or by buying Amazon and so on, are... uh, are basically paying him uh, rent. He's exploiting even Jeff Bezos. I know how he treats his workers, but we have a strange return from profit to rent. What happens with this rent? That And that's the tragedy. A private individual, or maybe many of them doesn't matter, privatizes something that Marx called which is ours like if you want to communicate you need uh, Facebook or whatever or you use Windows and so on if you want to buy books Amazon is incredible for my type of book social theory I was told they cover more than 60% of the space if they decide they can ruin or make a hit of a book so what I'm saying is that is that you see This is one situation when society has to take control. Today is the poor Trump. He fully deserved it. But don't you agree that since de facto, even if they deny it, Facebook and so on, uh, Twitter are not simply private companies. They are private companies which own part of our social space. And that's what horrified me when they say, again, sorry, I'm repeating myself, Facebook excluded. 
Sorry, yeah. who yeah. excluded yeah. him? Do they have yeah. some ethical committee or whatever? You know? Yeah, some they they Sorry, have please? well they it's not just that they own part of our social space they actively try to undermine public space in every other sphere where it would be democratically available and so you see with like protest protest happens in the public sphere we are lacking that right so socially we're alienated in multiple meanings of the word, but we really don't have a space to connect publicly. And it's been degraded over and over and over again. And these companies have a monopoly on social connection and public space. And then you see that we're traditionally, you know, public space was a political arena for, for many people. It, it's shifted to Facebook. It's shifted to Twitter. So because our normal political arena that was democratically available, like, you know, a town square, right? Or yeah. even a, like a Lions Club or a community center or even a mall in the 90s. Um, those were like our last public spaces. Now what we have is Twitter, Facebook, social media, and people are still fighting those political fights. Those are still spaces of this kind of feeling of democratic participation. But these firms have unprecedented tech authoritarian control over them. And, you know, it's troubling to see like the rah, 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 like cheering it on because at the same time that we need to be, you know, potentially nationalizing these companies, we need to be fighting for like real public space and places to connect physically, socially. I cannot agree more with you because now I will go to, I am also, believe you or not, not just a madman, but also uh, an ordinary man. And as part of my <laughs> bourgeois identity, I like to go to this old fashioned public spaces like a crowded street with small bookstores, cafeterias, and so on. And you know, maybe some of you know it, in uh, in Santa Monica, south of LA, You there was, I think it was the third or, or the fourth street for the, from the ocean, which was such an incredibly lively uh, place, cafeterias, a couple of bookstores, and so on. Now, it's all privatized, it's malls. And never forget, malls, uh, malls, shopping malls are a pseudo-public space. They are not really a public space, they are privately controlled. Yeah. Some malls directly, for example, prohibit people who look homeless or too poor to mm-hmm. enter, and so on, and so on. And this, I think, is a, but a tendency that we have to fight. Why? Because at the same time, as we know, uh, this all this media, uh, internet as such, especially and so on, SMS on uh, iPhones, play a tremendous role in today's social organization mobilization of us. Mm-hmm. I here agree with Julian Assange. I think that much more important than disclosing the data about what the United States Army, okay, that was important, but nonetheless, was doing in Iraq and so on, is his, (laughs) he wrote a book on Google. The thesis is Google is a privatized version of NSA, gathering all the information, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the danger today. Like we who are talking today, we think we are just communicating in, in a public space. No, we are already controlled. And that's my answer. I hope we, I hope you will agree against those who claim that uh, 
Assange is unilateral. Why does he focus only on the United States? Why not more on China, Russia, and so on? Well, I agree. I don't defend Putin. I know some of my friends were arrested for, that's the beautiful paradox, for acting in a Marxist way and trying to organize workers around Beijing. But you know what's the point here? Uh, in China, people are well aware that they are controlled by state, that they are not free. The ideological attraction and danger of the United States is that people think they are free. And I claim the most uh, effective unfreedom is the unfreedom that you experience as freedom. What can be more free than searching on the web, looking at different uh, clips from movies, talking like with you today, and so on and so on. But everything is not only registered, registered, but also manipulated today. So I agree with you, not only that public space is one of the key points of struggle today, but also that, also that, uh, uh, also, uh, also that, uh, uh, like, Public space is never neutral. You know, I'm not laughing. And you, uh, uh, you know, what is my uh, uh, next? Uh, uh, sorry, uh, what is my model of how, in a known racist way, you should proceed? You know that in Haiti, okay, they got stuck in problems. After Toussaint Louverture, I'm talking about Haiti Revolution, where it was an incredible event. My thesis is that French Revolution became really a world historical event only through its repetition in Haiti. I agree. In, in 1804, they finally established a constitution. And although it may appear subtly racist, I think it was the right gesture. You know how they define citizens of Haiti? Every citizen of Haiti, it's not a joke, I checked it. Uh, in, uh, 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 without regard of the color of his skin or religion, is black. I find this ingenious. Why? Because it shows the lie of the previous mm -hmm. constitution where de facto it meant you know, especially with patronizing liberals. Yeah, you black are also human, but this means that you have to work hard to become like us. Mm -hmm. It was the hidden standard. And that's why, again, precisely as a universalist, I don't think that black lives matter is in any way close to what I am really sometimes afraid of so-called identity politics in the bad sense, which neglects universality. No, no. Universality is not excluded. Again, we are back to Hegel, but this is Hegel's lesson for today. Universality, <coughs> sorry, does not mean you should forget your roots. Every great universality is clearly rooted in a even very specific situation. For example, What's that? Did she die recently? Sorry, it's not a racist, it's my simple senility. Who wrote Beloved? Oh, you uh, know, it's a black lady. 
Toni Morrison. You know what's Tony interesting? Morrison. Yeah, yeah. Some of my radical leftist friends have problems with her that she's okay. maybe too liberal. But I still say, I tell my students, if you want to learn what is modern universal subjectivity, look at Beloved. That in that gesture, preferring to expose to death, kill her daughter, or I think, mm-hmm. uh, just to avoid slavery and so on and so on, she acts as a universal subject. So you see, this is Kegel's lesson. And this should be our, who try to be honest, white, anti-racist to blacks. It's not that you have to make a choice between being truly universal and still sticking to your identity. No, because if our white universal identity excludes your black particular identity, this means it's in another way also particular, even if it appears universal. But that's that's the miracle of that's the miracle for me of that book and uh, other examples like that. For example, for me, I still think that it was an incredible event. Which you know the story. I like to repeat it. It almost made me cry. You know what happened with after Toussaint Louverture's death? Napoleon sent a whole army to Haiti. No, thousands of soldiers to crush the rebellion. And here we already see who are, sorry for the naivety, good white men and black, bad white men. Uh, my God, you see my racist sleep. I want you to say <laughs> black white men. What I'm saying is that uh, Napoleon was horrible there. He said that the case of Haiti, where blacks took power, is so dangerous that not only the revolution have to be defeated, but all have to be killed and new slaves brought. While in contrast to them, the Jacobins received them, the delegation from Haiti years before, and said openly, they are no less French citizens than ourselves. And so, but now the moment of beauty. You know why Napoleon's army lost? You know the story. It makes me cry. It's beautiful. When Napoleon's army was approaching black, the black army, you know that. There were many, Napoleon used them as this uh, secondary force, many Polish soldiers. And they heard certain sounds from the black camp. And they thought, oh, it must be some primitive African tribal songs, whatever. And when they come closer, they discovered the black army. They were singing Marseillaise. And then Mm. uh, the Polish army, Napoleon, in Napoleon's army, the Polish soldiers said, wait a minute, are we here on the right side? No. And they changed sides. This is why, even if, unfortunately, in 805 seats, I don't know when, things went a little bit wrong, and they decided to kill all white people in Haiti, they explicitly exempted the Poles. You know, so you see how I don't agree when some people criticized me for, uh, oh, but still Marseillaise was a model here. Yes, but it was a model fully appropriated by the black in the sense that I claim black slaves there 
have more right to think to, to think Marseillaise than the white soldiers sent there by Napoleon. And if you apply just this criterion, okay, how do you stand towards Haiti even today? You know, they are still paying the price for that. Even today, yeah. it remains the problematic point. Like the big hero of American liberal left, Thomas Jefferson. Ah, mm-hmm. that was his. He says to San Louverture, that's a barbarian, a savage, no debate, uh, no debate with him, and so on and so on. You know. So for me, it's uh, it's uh, and also that's also why I wonder. Let's go a little bit more into problematic waters. Oh, that's why okay. I am not totally at ease with this topic of cultural appropriation as form of neo-colonialism. I see the tendency, and I and I support it. But listen, if we play this game to the end, then are not in some sense the original black slave music, or I don't know to what extent it's original soul and all those religious. Gospel song. So, uh, white or Jewish racist can also say, oh, they appropriated our stuff. Yes, maybe, but in appropriating it, they made it more authentic than the white people who were referring to the same topics and so on and so on. That's why I love, they may appear singular, crazy, but I love this even genetic uh, uh, all genetic uh, investigations are not just bullshit racist. You discover different things, like an Israeli geneticist, uh, maybe you know the story, discovered by uh, DNA analysis historical, no, that today's, uh, today's, uh, that, uh, the, uh, that how uh, genetically the Jews of that time of around Jesus Christ, we are much closer genetically to today's Palestinians. <laughs> these, these are exciting things for me, you know. This shows yeah. you much of bullshit is said, but nonetheless, I didn't forget about it. Your big question about uh, white communism. <clears throat> I think that in some sense, that's why I find it so attractive it's a horrible thing to say that today's situation is attractive, but fascinating, although tragic, that everybody had, has to accept that, A, at some level, at some level, economy has to be socialized. Look at the lowest of the lowest, Donald Trump. He had de facto to practice some kind of universal basic income. Okay, he did it in a cheating way. Much more money went to different big companies, institutions. But nonetheless, he had to accept this. A, people should not starve as a principle. And B, this should cover all independently of uh, race and so on and so on. How he treated each other. So uh, uh, this is the first thing. The second thing, elements of socialization. Didn't Even Trump was forced in a certain way to evoke that law or rule, I don't know, which was, I think, first practiced by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that in a wartime or a state of emergency, the state has to have the right to order companies what to do and so on and so on. 
In other words, you have to do things which should absolutely not be left to uh, market regulation. That's one thing. The other thing, now I get more problematic, I mean this ironically, of course, terror. <laughs> of course, I am against terror in the Stalinist or fascist way. But uh, some kind of uh, social control limitation is obviously uh, uh, necessary. Then egalitarianism. All countries are cheating. But we gained something. In principle, they had to accept that it's all of us or nobody that in principle the vaccine should be universally available and so on and so on. Uh, and trust of the people. So these are for me elements, not just people tell me you are utopian here. No, it's not so simple. Even those in power have in principle to accept these elements. This is what the situation demands. And of course, the hope of the establishment is that, okay, we do this for one year maximum. When the crisis is over, we return to our old normality. No, this exactly, I am afraid to say, because this involves a lot of, will involve a lot of pain, is not possible, will not happen. First, we already have problems. Uh, what is the efficiency of the vaccine? Uh, obviously, the pandemic will go on. I'm even afraid to think about other pandemics, about global warming, and so on and so on. We, unfortunately, will just need some more traumatic, critical, shocking situation and, mm. and more I hope it will become clear that we cannot play this double game you know like uh, yeah yeah uh, pandemic but we shouldn't hurt uh, or how do the right wingers say not only Trump their popular phrase is the medicine shouldn't be worse than illness itself <laughs> my, yeah. my answer to this is well, yes sorry no, no, no. I'm, I'm curious because you, you, I, I agree with you that the, the everything seems to be changing very dramatically, and that this is the coronavirus yeah. pandemic is is a, is changes everything. And on the other hand, and the United States just elected Joe Biden, like on a very explicit campaign to what you talk about the return to normalcy, which we cannot do anymore. What do you make of Joe Biden as a political figure? Uh, you know, uh, this was, I think, in the text for Jacobin, no, even, where I used that uh, one of my favorite, implicitly at least, anti-capitalist movies is John Carpenter's They Live, where yeah. aliens are already among us, and you have to use special glasses to see that behind the human face there is really an alien, you know. I called, yeah. in one of my old texts, I called that the critique of ideology glasses, you know. You think <laughs> it's a living person, you put the glasses on, you see he's just a robot working for the uh, capital or whatever, you know. And mm -hmm. I, so I think that, uh, that that's why I made the terrible statement uh, four years ago, to which I still stick, but not in the sense, my God, I was that I support Trump, that let's be objective now. Trump is a disgusting nightmare and so on, but with him, a certain rift tension appeared in 
We use the old-fashioned terms, the ruling class and even the ruling hegemonic ideology. And this is an opening for us. For me, in the long term, for me, Biden is why a catastrophe. Because uh, he didn't take the basic lesson from Trump, which we, the left, should take. You remember that also when Trump was doing the presidential campaign, some so-called, under quotation marks, moderates in Republican Party said, but you are going too far. We should be careful not to lose the center. No, Trump, from his dirty interests, wisely went to the extreme, and the more he went to the extreme, the more popular he became. And I think this is why it's the most horrible thing, and also in the long term, a political mistake that I can imagine. This Biden strategy, Bernie Sanders is too much, let's not go too far in that direction, let's not lose the center and so on. Bernie, I didn't meet him, but I met some people who knew him, told me that Bernie was aware of this. Our, in the long term, the only chance for Democrats would have been Democratic Party not to occupy the center, but to get Trump voters, those desperate they are not all Trump voters, but many of them are. Desperate lower, mid, lower middle class farmers uh, in Vermont and so on. And so sometimes, that's the dialectical paradox of political life. The only way to build an effective majority is to go more to the extreme. Another thing that I like to repeat again and again about Bernie Sanders, when people say socialist, communist, whatever. Listen. If you compare Bernie's program with uh, ordinary, not extreme, social democracy in Europe half a century ago, Bernie is more moderate than them. This shows the regression of our entire space and so on and so on. So I think that uh, the left shouldn't now fall into this trap of now, the fascist danger of Trump is the only big danger. No, now is the point to ask a deeper question. What was the democratic establishment doing wrong that something like Trump could have emerged? This is the crucial question. If That's why I'm a moderate pessimist here, if you ask me. If we will just try to restore normality, balance, and so on, we will precisely in the long term be reproducing the situation which gave birth to, which gave birth to Trump. I think it's, uh, it's the, the ultimate enemy for me, not that they are worse than Trump, I'm not saying this, is this democratic centrist establishment, because they are de facto hegemonic. And whatever you say about Trump, I do hate him, he's incredibly vulgar and so on, but he disturbed this uh, hegemonic center. Let's do the same thing from the left. That's our only chance, I think. Yeah, you know, it seemed like the Democrats felt that the threat coming from Bernie in terms of his destabilization was stronger than what came from Trump because Trump acted as a solidifying force for their base. 
um, including their donor base, whereas Bernie could fracture it um, and, and in that way presented a unique problem for them, uh, particularly with their campaign efforts on the ground in down ballot races. Um, Did you read? Sorry, I'm, oh, no. I'm inter- please go on. I interrupted well, you. I'm very I wanted sincerely to ask sorry. You. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I wanted to ask you about. Don't uh, me because if you say it's okay, <laughs> I'm a man, then, and then I will fun. say if it's okay, then I will do it all the time. Okay. <laughs> Maybe when please I say it's okay, on. it means that I can I can uh, deal with it adequately oh, enough. No. Stop <laughs> <talking. Yeah. laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to ask you about something that you say in your Jacobin article where you're talking about futurology. And I wanted to kind of relate that to the two um, types of normals that you were talking to talking about before. One is the kind of, um, well, it's unclear if this was just like a turf laying campaign, but the right wing, let's get back to normal slogan that yeah. did resonate with a lot of people. And I think their normal, what that signifier is, is very different than the Biden campaign's normal. Um, And I think both are depending on what you define as like futurology. And in your article, you say, quote, futurology deals with what is possible. We need to do what is from the standpoint of the existing global order impossible. Um, So we've seen, you know, two dominant calls for going back to what is possible for, for debating a future based off of what we believe is possible. You're calling for a departure there. Can you, um, you know, clarify that more and talk to our viewers about what you mean? Well, I'm, I, I don't think this is good for me, what I will say now, but I must openly admit that I cannot deliver, give you a precise point by point program. The only thing that I can conclude is that if we, refocus on the pandemic, it's clear that there is no solution without, not only without an efficient state apparatus, we need it, but without the state being supported by a lower, lower in the sense of more basic local communities. For example, friends were telling me the most touching story was that I heard from Madrid, and Barcelona, but mostly Madrid. The state did was doing very bad in March, April. Then people did locally something that in old communist jargon we called, or in Cuba we call, or rather called, local committees for the defense of the revolution. You know, locally people organized themselves without any tell anybody telling them how. Just people who were most active in a couple of blocks, and they say, okay, let's go through those who live in our small community. Let's see, are there any old people who need direct help, this, that, and so on, and so on. And without this, the catastrophe would have been much worse. Friends from Vietnam are telling me, because, you know, the miracle is not just, as they like to emphasize a little bit too much, China. Never forget, I say this to annoy my pro-Chinese old Maoist friends, don't forget Taiwan, which has an even better record than China and honor to communists who are in power still, don't forget Vietnam, where, again, it's not only the state, this old from the war against United States Army, all this long tradition of local committees, local communities was remobilized. 
and on the opposite end, an authentic international cooperation. Everybody in principle agrees with this. But uh, we will have to make a step further because it's clear that if you are not lucky the way New Zealand is, which is simply an island and so on, uh, uh, the only way is tight international cooperation. I don't believe, as some people accuse me, in directly passing to some kind of a global world government. No, in, if we do this with present political structures, admitted that it was commend incredible uh, global corruption, new forms of exploitation, and so on and so on, but serious cooperation. For example, what World Health Organization is trying to do, it should get much stronger. We need a central agency, which at least gives us the proper statistic. We know so little how it happens. What is even with numbers, you know, these numbers don't mean a lot that maybe we all read on Worldometer and so on and so on. Like, uh, you know, there are many countries which report as death from COVID more people than the numbers say, because Belgium, it's not as bad as it appears. They have this rule. If you die for whatever reason, if you had COVID, it's counted as COVID death. Then there are other countries like Turkey. I hear from my friends and I hear also about Russia, where they try to keep the numbers of death low by re categorizing it like many COVID cases are simply counted as uh, as, as lung, other lung diseases and so on and so on. So we need this type of global cooperation, not just for pandemic, but for global warming. Look, an old story, I repeat it all the time, so I will repeat it again. You remember, you are, you are younger than me, but not so young, so young. <laughs> Do you remember the Fukushima accident, you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, a friend of mine, a very good fut- futurologist, but in a good sense of catastrophes, was there, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, was there two days after, and learned that, you know, that for, for one day almost, the Japanese government was in total panic. Because it looked that the entire Tokyo area, 30 million people would have to be evacuated. Where, in a rational order of global cooperation, it's clear you have to make some deal with Russia. Because now, again, because of global warming, you have vast territories in northeastern Siberia, which can be... But uh, in today's situation, the... The only solution would have been war or whatever. You know, the same they did it in in history. When some people were not able to continue living where they were living, they left and they went. Uh, they left and then it was war. Either they want killing the others or not, and so on and so on. So what I'm saying is that today, with chemical weapons, uh, nuclear weapons, and all that. Uh, the old way would lead to a global catastrophe sooner or later. So the only choice we have here is what I call the Zardos, did you see the old, was it Sean Connery or which movie? And there is the new one, I always forget the title, with Matt Damon, I think, where the elite lives on a... Elysium. 
Oh, Elysium, yeah. yes. So it's either Elysium or global cooperation, if you ask me. It's clear that this is a choice. And when people tell me you are a utopian, I tell them, wait a minute. Already those in power, look at them, what they are doing. They are acting in such a way that it's clear that they don't believe their own predictions. Like the most obscene thing I found is, and I, in a strange way, this fascinates me. Again, my petit bourgeois fascist. <laughs> you know, these reports about how in the abandoned wartime bunkers in the, in the Rocky Mountains and so on, rich are building whole underground cities and so yeah. on. Yeah. For example, my friends in New Zealand are telling me, you know, I looked at some of the pamphlets for the luxury bunker, bunkers because I have another yes. job working for a wealthy um, author and she received them and they were wild. They are wild. They seem to have everything except a therapist. And when you think of living through global <laughs> collapse in a bunker yeah. with a couple other people, maybe like that aspect of things might be the most important. But they're like, no, big screen TV, heated pool, place for your dog. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, yeah. it's unbelievable. This is this is for me an obscenity. And here this uh, awakens my worst I admit it, Stalinist instinct. You know? Like, for example, yeah. I would say, okay, not for the new nomenclatura, but somehow I would prohibit this. They did one step towards this very wisely, although I don't idealize them, but nonetheless, in New Zealand. You know, they simply, so many billionaires were buying houses there that they simply had to stop it. This is what I call, uh, what's the big Vancouver phenomenon? Mm, this yeah. central island, which is beautiful, upper middle class, the paradise of all of us, you know. And, um, uh, people who live there practically cannot afford to buy an apartment uh, there, you know. Yeah. So, uh, incidentally, what you mentioned about Twitter and so on, uh, I, in my secret Stalinist dreams, I'm much worse than just uh, controlling it socially. I don't know. Okay, it will, I don't mean it quite seriously. It's my dream. But I would prohibit Twitter in my hardline yeah. communist I agree. Regime. There's a lot yes, of people. People are losing time there and so on. I wouldn't yeah. mind a kind of a secret police control. And if they find <laughs> you using Twitter more than one hour per day, you have to do some work like cleaning toilets in the dirtiest hospital for one week, 10 hours per day. Something is so wrong by each, although Chomsky often attacks me, you know. But at that point, (laughs) I agree with him. He was asked once, and he admitted it's not just censorship. Why doesn't he more often appear on big TV, mm-hmm. uh, uh, all these different talk shows, no? And he says, the rhythm is crazy, it's the uh, tweeting rhythm, you know. You, mm-hmm. you have usually less than one minute, you are already interrupted and so on. You cannot even develop a line of thought. Mm-hmm. And that's why I like to be here. You should interrupt me even more often. <laughs> because I think that's the most horrible thing. Even I caught myself on 
the way we live in digital universe now, like I live in a small country where we are lucky, maybe, maybe it's not good for me to say this, but uh, big movie companies don't care if you download uh, movies illegally. Because the whole of Slovenia is 2,000, who cares? They would have to invest too much, you know. To, uh, yeah. So, But, you know, I remember how this instant availability, you want to see even an old movie, you go, you download it. In a strange way, it uh, affected the way I watch. I limit myself to a couple of clips, and then I say, oh, but maybe I have another choice, better, and so on. At the end, I just take a look at a couple of uh, clips and so on and so on. And I'm here an old-fashioned philosopher, I think. What we need is precisely this slow, more peaceful, not peaceful in the sense of avoiding social contacts, but peaceful in the sense of that you take, because there is the take a step back, because there is the right type of urgency, you know, like, my God, catastrophe, we have to do it. But admit it that our culture also often mobilizes the wrong kind of urgency. Like, for example, once years ago, I listened to a debate with Bill Gates, and he said, why even deal? These are just big words with all this problem, socialism, capitalism. Why do we, all honest people, not simply come together and do something and so on? You know, this reformulation yeah. of basic problems into these practical, pragmatical issues is a catastrophe. Because as I always repeat it, the way we formulate a problem is usually part of the problem. My example, I wonder if you, Ariel, would agree with me here, is that, uh, this often I repeat this point, I'm sorry, it's that, uh, did we notice how the fight against racism is usually in the liberal center uh, reformulated in the terms of tolerance? which I yeah. think is already an ideological mystification because tolerance tends to turn it into a psycho-ideological problem. Like, let's say that I hate you black. With you, I don't know what you are. You have a strange name. What are you, Nando Villa? Are you Spanish? I'm from Spain. As white or what? Sorry, I cannot. You know, I know. this might be correctness, but you can be... You should feel safe for one reason. My idea is be aggressive, humiliating, but this should be a sign of friendship. You know, this means we trust each other. With enemies, I never talk like this. It's called politeness. You know, you don't, uh, you don't uh, 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 talk with them. But, uh, uh, okay, sorry, I talked too much. Please ask me some questions. No, I, I see what you mean. When you frame things as an issue of tolerance, what you're saying is two yeah. things. One, that it's um, an affective issue. It's about emotion. It's about behavior. The other thing and is... It psychologizes me. At the end, it, the problem becomes, why do I, which I don't, why do I feel ill at ease, at ease with you? Yeah. Black yep. people, the problem then all of a sudden is not ideological tradition, economic yep. exploitation, but what yep. is my psychological trauma? Yep. 
go and to a psychoanalyst, I should look deep yeah. into myself. That's why I'm here for the, and I really mean it, the, if we really want to be against racism, our practice should be that of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is fake it till you make it. No, <laughs> don't spend hours with psychoanalysts. What, what we yeah. find on the line of black, black people is that I am purely ironic here. Is that when yeah. I was a small boy, I saw a black guy having sex with my ma- white mother. This type of primitive. No, no, no. I believe here I am in the tradition of friends. French Catholic Jansenism Pascal, who said, you don't believe, fake it as if you believe it will get you better. I believe in good manners. They will not save us. No, no, I'm not a liberal idealist. Yeah, you know? but still. My old, you probably didn't read my book on Lenin introduction, the old one, where I use this example. It doesn't save the situation, but it's a example. An old friend from South Africa told me that in that epoch before before Mandela took over when there was still apartheid he was at a demonstration black and white together demonstrating against apartheid and then police attacked and a black lady who probably she wasn't too low class, doesn't matter. The problem is that she had high heels. Mm-hmm. Right away, one of the high heels broke off, so she had to stop and lost one. He lost one shoe. And then an ethical miracle happened. You know what happened? The white policeman, and it wasn't his inner goodness, he was probably, it's just this basic superficial. Even make chauvinist manner. You see a lady in trouble, you have to help. She, mm. he, he, policeman, picked up the shoe and gave it to here. Here you have it, lady. And then they looked at each other and felt like idiots. Like, what now that I have a shoe, we should start running again, <laughs> playing the game. And then they said, they said politely, okay. All the best to you and walked apart, you know. Yeah. Even this yeah. works. I think that yeah. we know why. Because don't you agree that today, <laughs> officially, apart from Trump people, nobody is directly, oh, nobody, okay, in the United States, 30% now, <laughs> directly racist. But what I fear more are these liberal, polite racists. They are absolutely for the black, for... But then you ask them, they have no black friends, they mm-hmm. they feel unease. They, yeah. and they it's I have somewhere listed a whole list of these everyday racism reactions. Like they say, I love black people. When I was young, you remember, we, it wasn't yet no, you don't remember, you're too young. I hate you for that. You, <laughs> you, we didn't have these earphones, you had those boom boxes that you Yeah, had. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 really. My God, yeah. I thought the time was before you. 
<laughs> or are you super plastically operated or whatever? No. Yeah. Let's stop. <laughs> no. I'm a robot. Put the glasses on. I'm not real. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I have. They leave. Yeah. But uh, I will see yeah. another Trump's daughter or what. Sorry. No. Yeah. no. Yeah. <laughs> what I want to say is that uh, uh, this was one of the typical white people's reproach. If just their music is too loud or yeah. typical, they laugh too loudly, you know. This mm-hmm. this is don't forget about the efficiency efficiency, sorry, of this absolutely ordinary everyday racism. Which yeah. is not even a part of ideology in this strict sense of a system of uh, of, yeah. of uh, theoretically grounded as you tell, prejudices on all this, but it's just this everyday unease. Or yeah. in France, it was discovered that in in subway in Paris metro, they asked people why they avoid metro, and their point was bad people. I have nothing against them, but they smell bad, and so on. You know, <laughs> like this. This is don't underestimate the efficiency of this. I think that the true. That's why would you also agree with this? And especially this is for me the lesson of Black Black Lives Matter and so on. That that uh, the movement should go on like I am from my European perspective. I'm sick and tired of these great events. You remember three years ago or when when it was the book big moment of 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 uh, of Podemos in Spain. Mm-hmm. A million people persisted for days on the central square and all my friends were fascinated. And then I repeated my old joke. I told them, and what will happen then? You will return home and meet once year in the cafeteria. Uh, oh my God, how and remembering that moment. And then in the middle of that, your phone will ring, you are needed in your bank and you will meet. <laughs> like... Uh, the true test of a revolution or social change is, for me, precisely when this big enthusiastic moment is over, how do ordinary people feel the change at the everyday level? And if yeah. I were black, that's how I would have began. Not, yeah, yeah, we all demonstrate against racism. Let's see how you treat me at this uh, everyday level. Yeah, unfortunately, it's been just um, completely subsumed into um, this liberal framework where it's exactly as you said, there's a discomfort and people are starting to think that their own personal comfort and discomfort are a political terrain, which in my opinion, they're not. But they do try to make inroads or say, I mean, I personally have gotten, I lived in Portland, Oregon, which is like the mecca of these people where they'd be like, oh, I love your natural hair. You're so exotic. You know, they're trying to do things to prove that they have access to the social capital of tolerance. But tolerance presupposes a fixed category. And part of the experience of being black is that when you're in the fixed category, if someone's like, into the fixed category or not into it, it doesn't matter because it denies you your humanity. You don't have any agency against the category they imagine they're being tolerant or intolerant yeah. of. And and that personally feels quite terrible. I think for every black person in America, they can relate to that no matter what side of the aisle or, or political spectrum they're on, is this denial of self where you're constantly trying to break that. Um, and, you know, we've, we have had like incredible... Um, writing about this uh, for decades and decades 
Um, but I think what we're starting to see is because there's a political failure of the tolerance approach or of boutique multiculturalism yeah. or uh, the liberal approach at race as bad feeling, people are starting to look at the political terrain. And I think that's one of the things that underpins the defund argument is like, what are the resources in a community and how do people actually gain access to them? Or what is the... Um, effect of violence or um, state violence or symbols of state violence? How does that change the way people interact and feel? And I think those are the conversations that we need to be pushing because I'm sick of people telling me they like my natural hair, but I had a similar experience and I think I did a wonderful thing. We were sitting at a table after some conference in New York, some 10 people with uh, uh, some of them were blacks, and we did the politically correct thing, you know. Like, uh, we went you to some Ethiop them. Ethiopian <laughs> restaurant, you know, like uh, anti Eurocentric. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then uh, there was a black guy, not totally black, from Ethiopia there also, no? And I did something very risky. I said, I hate this shitty Ethiopian food. You know what the Ethiopian guy said? I also hate it. <laughs> so we went, the, we went out to an old-fashioned hamburger place and enjoyed it. And told them, you eat. Because, you know, this uh, it's so important. That's, for me, the limit of tolerant identity politics. That's why white liberals like you, black, to play your identity card. Yeah. And yeah. here I see That's the okay. opposition between that Haiti, all citizens are black. Mm -hmm. No. They like you in your particularity, but what you should do is what they try to do in Haiti to show how your particular identity, if taken seriously, implies a new form of universality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Particularity, I say I'm all for particularity. But what, what, what this particular identity means in the terms of universality? You know, every particularity, like, it's clear that this, uh, uh, our way, they are stealing our way of life, what Trump protesters uh, mm -hmm. claim. They, they in, of course, they will not say we are racist, but if you ask them what their position implies, we are there. But I want to say something else. Did you notice this detail, which is totally insignificant, but I think it had a symbolic meaning. You know that total idiot jerk, uh, the guy in the Capitol, who had a kind of a Viking... Oh, well, yeah, the Q-Nan shaman. The q yeah, shaman. Yeah, yeah, but you know the joke. I know this because I admit another part of my proto-fascist tendency, I uh, admired Nordic myth Vikings. You know that these yeah. helmets with horns, they never existed. They are the early 19th century cultural invention of late Romanticism. Some people think it in some late Karl Maria Weber and early uh, Richard Wagner's operas that they were first invented. So much about, you know, White, whites who want to defend their tradition. Also, at another point, uh, do you think this is too risky, what I will say now, but I think it's not. We radical leftists should not just be with all my support for LGBT, and I mean it seriously. I 
precisely defined it why they are, as it were, the symptom of this or they could be supported. But I think that we should do something else. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the idea came to me with that unfortunate debate with uh, Jordan Peterson, no? Yeah. <laughs> he has this idea, we lack firm values, postmodern historicism, relativism. Mm-hmm. My point is, is not to accept the debate the way the enemy formulates it. And then you defend, no, there is no common decency, we all have our manners. But to say, wait a minute, I agree with you, but why are you then for Trump? Don't you agree that if there ever was a cynical, relativist, historicist, without any stable values person, it's in this critical sense, he is the true historicist relativist. And if there is somebody who has, I know how problematic is term, the term is, I use it as a provocation. If there is somebody who really deserves the name moral majority, simple decency, it's Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. So we should be, yeah. be afraid, not in any compromises, like, okay, we agree with you, white, white, decent people, we shouldn't too much look for the care for the black people. No, to convince them that we who care for blacks, other races, feminism, we speak on behalf of common decency and so on. Yeah. This is important today. Because the first mistake of many leftists is to accept the terrain the way it is. Yeah. The yeah. way, the way, the way yeah, yeah. Well, it's the framed way by the right. Views uh, are a state yeah. formulated uh, by, by the enemy. So if you yeah. ask me, did you read a good text by Warren Montag, where he, I forgot where, where from a California a Marxist who said that uh, uh, who on uh, the one hand claimed that and we shouldn't uh, that's uh, to conclude one remark I want to make very important I think that uh, there was also some kind of a carnival moment in what happened in uh, on the capital you know this mob going wild and so on. And that's what should give us to think. You know, many leftists think even uh, Negri and Hart developed this, I think, in their first book, The Big Hit, uh, 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 Multitude and so on, that, uh, that Carnival is the moment of freedom where social rules are suspended. Yeah, but, you know, I'm very un- un- uh, ambiguous about it. When the social rules are suspended, it's also the worst of you that comes back. Sorry, but in the yeah. American South, in the 20s and later, yeah. the carnival was raping black women and lynching black men. Smiling in front of it, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Kristallnacht yeah. was also a carnival. And yeah. then... Uh, uh, but the structure uh, of that, I mean, it's not without structure. It's not a space of freedom. It's just... No, um, no. Actually, I totally agree with you. Now, at least... Sorry. ...of decency. You know, it's, yeah, it's just... because now at least like FBI wants, and it's as if by mistake, FBI is doing some... 
Yeah. I wouldn't say good stuff, but stuff that we can use. Yeah. And more and more it shows this wasn't just a lower class crowd staging a carnival there. First, they were most of them not only middle, but even upper middle class. They, mm-hmm. and, uh, they even, I love these details, do you know that they even flew mostly business class to Washington and yeah. stayed in expensive hotels yeah, yeah. there. And second thing... You can't sit in control when you're going to go take down the U.S. government. You've got to get no. the, that leg room. Yeah, but yeah. okay, Warren Montag's problem is, of course, that even if Trump disappears, the movement, because according to some statistic estimates, you now have almost half the Republican Party, which means all in all about 30 million voters who mm-hmm. agreed with the attack on the Capitol, who support violent action. Okay, this time, hopefully, it will also not, it didn't work for them. But then Warren Montag is the fear, what if in the next generation, a more rational, calculating, intelligent guy will come? Yeah. Yes, but I just wouldn't use these terms because remember that people say Trump is crazy, uh, uh, cognitively limited, denying things, but never forget that this was also the reason of his success, you know, mm-hmm. precisely this denialism. And so, so it's not so simple. I, I think that if you look at successful right-wing fascist leaders like Hitler, he was even more hysterical and so on than Trump in the yeah. public. But at the same time, he was more successful in getting the support of big industry and so on, all that, all that. You know, that, that's why the, the one, would you agree here? The one, and if I say this, I will immediately appear a sexist, I know. <laughs> like a beautiful woman. The best reaction till now was AOC, no? who, who said, okay, till now for strategic reasons, short term, we supported Biden. Now the fight begins again, immediately against the democratic establishment. And yeah. the big yeah. danger I see, would you agree with it or not, is that Biden will try to blackmail you, you, American left, by saying, but since our minority is now lower in, uh, in the Congress, if we want to pass that measure, you should, we should all join to defeat the Republicans and so on and so on. Yeah. No, yeah. here we should, the so-called democratic socialism, whatever we call them, we should take some risks now, yeah. because yeah. literally we stand for the future. Biden yeah. is, right. uh, Biden is, as I put it in another text, slightly provocatively, uh, Trump with a human face. Although I think I was wrong there, because at the same time, in some vulgar sense, Trump is Biden with a human face. Biden is a big, big capital establishment, but with all his obscenities, dirty jokes, Trump, who stands for the same, gave in the vulgar sense of it's, it's human to be vulgar, a kind of a human sense. Well, I, yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I think that that's, uh, I think that that's a place to wrap it up. Uh, Slavos, I don't want to take much more of your time. Thank you so, so much for being with us. This was so much fun. It's always. Can I um, finish with a mega one minute less mega provocation. Once when I praise AOC, 
some guy attacked me oh. in a vulgar way, claiming, ah, this is just beautiful. And then he used the expression, I will not repeat it here, which is, I think, the usual vulgar American expression for a man wanting to have sex with a woman. You would just like to S, screw her brain yeah. out. Yeah. Admit it or not, and especially to you, Arnevansio, I think I gave a very good feminist answer. <laughs> I said, maybe, but I cannot do it because her brain, not just her looks, is really so big, it's very bright, it's brilliant what she's doing, that I'm too old to S out all her brain. <laughs> I think this is a be- vulgar but a beautiful answer. You know, let's, this is what I like to do. Let's accept the vulgar terrain, but let's turn it around from within. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I really think. You no, know, I was quite shocked at the beginning. It was. I admit it. I'm a mechanic. It's her beauty. But then I saw some of her congressional hearings and so on. Wait a minute, she is really bright to Catalonia. You know, she is really yeah. bright. No? So I think that if really, as she said, she felt threatened that uh, they wanted to kill her. Where if I were the, the Viking guy or older, you know, well, I would begin <laughs> by killing her. <laughs> the Viking guy really didn't didn't uh, fulfill the the Viking prophecies. There, he didn't kidnap or sell anyone into slavery. No. <laughs> yeah, well, I think is that nonetheless, I think it was meant more as a carnival, which doesn't mean that it's not serious. My formula here is I used it. You know, Marx said first as a tragedy, then as a farce. Yeah. But as already Herbert Marcuse said about Nazism, remember, it began as a carnivalesque farce in the 20s in Germany. That the experience of uh, fascism tells us first as a farce, then as a tragedy. You had the farce now, in spite of that. Basically, it was a carnival. But let's wait and see. Yeah, and that's where we are. Is this live? Yes, it yes, is live. It's live oh my yeah. God. So you cannot do the Stalinist censorship. Okay, no. I asked you, I'm sorry that I don't smoke because of all that I've said here, then I should have asked you, send me cigarettes to prison. You know, but I'm beyond that. I don't care. Well, I'm most really lovely. grateful. If you come very. back, you. we'll send you cigarettes. We'll also Absolutely. see if Jacobin can get a dominatrix to, you know, enforce some of those yeah. question times. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing that you need with me. Did you see, but I don't like it. It no longer works. James Bond movie, Goldfinger. Yes. You remember the famous car with the red button? That yes. You press the red button and you're, the guy sitting next to you, the idea is his. Yeah. Having mm. a gun that you controlled is thrown out, no? Well, I yes. think next time that. when I go in these obscene topics, you need a red button. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> put the red button for self-injection. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much, really. Thank Thanks you. Very much. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, Slavo Zizek, always a trip, always a yes. great time. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. How can you not? How can you not love the man? Uh, really, yeah. you know, it's 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 really just uh, um, a litany of both like intelligence, but also just a willingness to have fun that I that I mm-hmm. find uh, uh, very intoxicating. 
Yeah, and it's nice with these extremely um, serious, somewhat grave conversations, you know? Um, And I think he's absolutely right. The alt-right online, its online presence is also farce, irony, sarcasm. It's not serious, but we have guns kind of thing, you know? Maybe we need to match a little bit of that. Certainly worked for Chapo, and it certainly worked for Zizek. Totally. Well, let's bring on uh, young producer Kale um to wrap this show up kale where you at there he is what did you think of big bad can you get us that button yeah this is not an act i can follow there is nothing i can say right now after what we've just watched (laughs) (laughs) that was incredible yeah it's just again i love the the i mean we've had tons of great guests on the show don't get me wrong ronan burdenshaw was an incredible guest we've had you know, sounds great, but just something about the uh, and Gizek would would hate me for saying this, but something about the old timers. Just uh, it, they're the best. You know, mm-hmm. Richard Wolf, uh, Gizek, Noam Chomsky. Uh, there's just something about it is just it, I, I I love so much. We t- should start calling them the Boombox Generation. Maybe <laughs> the Boombox <laughs> Generation. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I like it. Um, so, folks. Uh, audience, friends, comrades of, you know, our viewers uh, send us some super chats we can try to answer some questions in the next couple minutes Um, Mm -hmm. and in the meantime if you're not sending a super chat or even if you are sending a super chat, please hit like please hit subscribe, please share this if you enjoyed it Um, uh, it takes like two seconds and there's going to be a lot more of this kind of stuff in the future, maybe we'll get Shishak back on Uh, sure we will yeah um, and in the meantime, I also want to mention that we now, for our video uh, content, we have a Patreon that's in the in the description of this. And so we're going to start doing some exclusive Patreon content in the coming months. So it will be worth it. Um, we appreciate the support, but we're also going to try to give you something in return. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I might I might be more involved on that side of things. So. Uh, you know, some Q and A. If you want some extra videos. kale in your life, yeah. What's your exclusive content going to be, Kale? Yeah, just, just uh, kale gifts, just like kale reaction gifts. Yeah, we're going to do kale emojis. Kale. We're going <laughs> to, <Yeah. laughs> you know, so we'll just all of all of my kale salad. <laughs> yeah, we can. Yeah. What does that even mean? What would what would be a kale salad in this context? You know, a variety well, of, of quips and remarks all jumbled together. Yeah. Um, but I'm not the producer. Why are you asking me to do <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I'm You're the producer. Sad. Yeah. We're just, we're getting some content ready to greenlight for the Patreon right now. This is, if you want ex- exclusive, maybe never to be seen ever again, uh, one-off things like kale salad, maybe you should join the Patreon. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have like two yeah. expressions. I don't think kale emoji is gonna go. I don't. I don't think, it, like, it's just me smiling at Bernie. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just, <laughs> just yeah. thinking about Bernie. I love. I love. I love Zizek's comment about Bernie that he really, he really does represent the moral majority. That he's like the true <laughs> avatar of decency, and it's like it's true. You know, yeah. Bernie's just a good man. He's a good lad. He's done, he never did a bad thing in his life. Yeah. Um, and, Remember when yeah. they were trying to frame him as like he's this crotchety, mean old old man? 
Um, I was actually called out, like my son had a Bernie shirt on or something. And this woman was like, oh, I just think he's sexist. Like, I don't like his attitude towards women. And she was like, I try to show my kids like to support women. And I was like, oh, I think my son likes him because he reminds him of his Jewish grandpa. And she Mm. was like, "Uh oh, like, oops. (laughs) Because <laughs> I was yeah. like, I could give you a substantive thing, or I could just call you out for anti-Semitism, and I'm gonna do it the anti-Semitism part. Yeah. yeah, use it. You weaponize it against yes. back against them. I love that about him, though. I actually like that he's like, I'm not, I'm not answering that question. I, I'm done right. with this. This is foolishness. Yeah. I want more. Yeah. This is foolishness in my politics. Right. Yeah. Well, AOC people... has quite a bit of that too. Yeah. No, I think I think that's going to be a necessary part going forward for the left of basically saying like i know what you're doing right now it doesn't work on me and this is what this is actually the political question this is actually the political fight yeah like yeah i'm stealing that i'm paraphrasing from amber lee frost actually on that one so i'm not gonna claim that's my own but but i think she's right it's like just you we all know the game that people are playing call it out move on and Mm -hmm. get to the actual political substance yeah no absolutely um, yeah, I think guys, that goes to, to Zizek's point about not accepting the terrain that we're we're given to argue on. Never you know, just be like this is this is foolishness. I yeah. mean that that was the lesson of 2016. That was the lesson of the Corbin uh, experience. You know mm-hmm. that somehow this man got smeared as an anti semite, and it for whatever reason stuck. Um, so so yeah, you can't you can't even like you can't even countenance the question. You know, it's not even. It's not even because it does not come uh, from a position of good faith. You can't you can't even grant them that. Um, so once you start defending yourself, it's it's like that old LBJ thing. You know, it's like, wait, you can't call that guy, whatever he called uh, some political opponent. He's like, yeah, let the son of a bitch deny it. It's yeah. like, and then once you start denying it, you're tarred with it no matter what. Um, yeah. So. Low energy jab. <laughs> I'm high energy. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. You can't be like, actually, I'm a master. I have lots of energy. Of yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. Now, yeah. now the left has to take up the mantle of being funny politically. Like, yeah, the, oh, the right had one person who could do it and they're gone now. I mean, not, yeah. not, not yet. I mean, okay. I don't want to speak too soon, but uh, you know, or like, Twitter's greatest comedian just got kicked off. So now we have to both be serious, much more serious, and also much more uh, comedic and, yeah. and enjoyable. Well, that's like, why I love. That's why I love Zizek because he's he's that you know. Yeah, he is. He's both serious and and fun and funny at the same time. Yeah. Um, People all right, send us well, questions. That's, There's no questions. no questions. So it's too bad you you missed your shot. It's too bad. It's two. It's twelve twenty. Uh, it's late. Uh, the natives are getting restless. So all right, <laughs> all right, kids. Well, well I want to uh, I want to say thank yeah. you again to Ariella for joining us yes, today. That I was just about to filling in from her normal uh, her normal block on the Jacobin channel, which mm-hmm. is six p.m. on Wednesdays on the Jacobin Show. <laughs> is that what I was supposed what, to do? Yeah. What do, we got, what do we got? What do we got next Wednesday? What's what's coming down the pike? Oh, we've got Paul and Jen, no doubt, um, doing an amazing episode. I think they're going to be it's, talking to Jane McAlevey. Is that right? Yeah, we're doing Jane McAlevey on inauguration night. So, yeah. Oh, nice. Should be should be a great show. Um, so stick around, enjoy the the content here that we do every week for you, and 
enjoy whatever I'm about to do for you on Patreon. So uh... <laughs> you make it sound, you make it sound, you make it sound it's very so enticing. Fair. Guys, not you, viewers. <laughs> mm, right. <laughs> it's just Patreon. <laughs> just Patreon. All right, I'll I'll let all you guys right, sign up. But thank you both so much yeah. for all of this. Later, yeah, Joe. And for take care. Me. It was great to to be on the show with you. Ariel, Ariel, always a pleasure. Always, you know, love having you on. It, love your, just you know, you, you, you know your stuff. You're you're the smarty. I'm I'm a I'm a big dummy. You know, I I, I don't I, think so. You know, I saw true. a comment that was like, Nando has a big brain, but his questions are always for the normal people. We see you. We have our ideological glasses on. <laughs> Secret <laughs> well, intellectual you. with all those busts of marks behind you. <laughs> That's the, yeah, that's, I love that's... being on the show. And I'm really excited to watch you and Anna next week. Can't wait. Yeah, we're going to have her back. Anna's going to be back. Uh, regular programming. And we have a very surprise special guest that I'll tell you guys all about in the week. All right? Well, Ariella, thank Exciting. you so much. Thank you guys for watching. This is Nando Vila for Jacobin Weekends. See you next week. Mm-hmm.